Shock sells. We all know that. The media loves to focus on stories that get people riled up, get them emotionally invested, make them sad, make them angry. And this was every bit as true hundreds of years ago as it is today. One such instance of this happens to be the burgeoning press of mid-1700s France. Local and national media outlets were beginning to spring up, and excited entrepreneurs saw the potential for huge income to be made in what was basically a brand new, untapped market. All they had to do was find that one killer story that would hook people, and keep them hooked. But there was a problem. The king censored all of the political news. So whatever this story was going to be, they were going to have to find it somewhere else. And so a new style of reporting emerged and grew extremely popular, in which stories of everyday occurrences in small villages across the nation were highlighted, and sometimes embellished. These stories were mostly harmless, but there was one story in particular that managed to break the mold. Fueled by the power of the press, it spread like wildfire all across France and beyond, inciting mass panic through an entire region of southern France. But on the bright side, it did help to sell a lot of newspapers. This is Simply Strange, the podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 13 of Simply Strange, lucky episode number 13. This is a big one. I'm your host, PJ, and I am ecstatic that you were able to join me today. This week, we will be going to France, and I don't really have any news or anything I want to talk about here at the beginning of the episode. All I want to do is give you a quick disclaimer. French is not my native tongue, as you may have guessed. So I'm going to do my best to pronounce all of these names, but some of them are a little challenging for me. So please forgive me if I butcher anything, but I am going to do my best. And now, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into it. This is the story of the Beast of Javudan. France in 1764 was not a fantastic place to be. The Seven Years' War had just ended, a campaign that proved to be an utter disaster and saw France suffer multiple devastating defeats, losing all of their territories in mainland North America, disrupting their trade, and plunging their economy into a deep state of disarray. Morale among the worn-down citizens of France seemed to be at rock bottom, and they needed a change. They needed something to unify them, to help restore their damaged pride. And in a lot of ways, they were about to get exactly that. But in other ways, things were about to become even more difficult. Because although the Seven Years' War had just ended, a new war was about to begin. 
but this time with a much different kind of enemy. Our story takes us to the Gévaudan region of southern France, a remote, sparsely populated area with rugged, mountainous terrain dotted with bogs and patches of fir and beech trees, and a reputation for being wild and untamed, maybe a little mysterious. The people of Gévaudan were mostly uneducated farmers and peasants who lived off the land and got by as best as they could. But life there could be challenging, and an ever-present danger haunted them at all times. Wolves. In the summer of 1764, a young girl was on her family's farm tending the cattle with her dogs. As she went about her work, she noticed a slight movement out of the corner of her eye, coming from the forest that lies along the edge of their pasture. She turned her gaze in the direction of the movement, and she screamed in terror, startling the cattle. She saw, emerging from the forest, what almost seemed like a wolf. It would have looked exactly like a wolf, except that it was huge, far bigger than any wolf she had ever seen. Whatever it was, the enormous creature had made its way out of the woods and was darting straight towards her. She began turning to run away, briefly stumbling in her panic before regaining her footing and dashing in the other direction. Her panicked dogs ran with her. As she ran, she ventured a quick glance over her shoulder and saw that her cattle had formed a barrier between her and the beast, and they were actually fending it off, eventually causing it to flee. She ran the rest of the way home, and between panicked gulps of air, explained to her family what she had just seen. The attack at first didn't seem that unusual. Wolf attacks were very common at the time. According to French historian Jean-Marc Morisot, between the years 1362 and 1918, an almost unbelievable 7,600 people were killed by wolves. It was a constant threat and a part of life for the people of early modern France, especially in the more rural mountain and forest regions like Gévaudan. But what was unique about this encounter was her description of the beast. What at first seemed like an exaggeration blown out of proportion by her fear in that moment, began to be a recurring theme. Soon people all over Gévaudan would encounter this enormous wolf, and many of them would not be quite so lucky. On the evening of June 30th, 1764, the beast claimed its first official victim, 14-year-old Jeanne Boulet. The details are sparse, but we do know that she was viciously attacked while tending her family's sheep. Some reports even claim that she was completely devoured by the beast, and all that was found at the scene was her blood-soaked bonnet and her shoes. And from there, the attacks became commonplace and a noticeable, disturbing trend began to emerge. The vast majority of the victims were women and children, and oftentimes their bodies would be discovered horribly mutilated, often decapitated or with their throats slashed. A month after Jean Boulay's death, the beast struck again. The victim this time was another young girl. Reportedly, with her dying breath, she was able to describe her attacker, calling it a horrible beast. 
Weeks later, a 16-year-old boy met a similar fate. In September of 1764, the beast claimed the lives of three more people, a 36-year-old woman and three children. The beast's influence was growing stronger, and it was becoming quite well known, casting a shadow of fear all across the region and becoming known simply as La Bette, or the beast. People were afraid to venture out of their homes, and rumors began to spread, painting the beast as an otherworldly monster with supernatural abilities. Before long, the beast was believed by many to be able to walk on its hind legs and possess a thick hide that could repel bullets. It was said that the creature's eyes burned red like fire, and that it came back from the dead more than once, and that it had the ability to leap extraordinarily high. Some people even claimed that the beast could walk on water and laugh and speak. Fearing that the string of attacks and the ensuing rumors might incite a mass panic and cause even more damage than had already been done, the local authorities called in for military backup. And a few days later, the captain of the local infantry, Jean-Baptiste Duhamel, arrived in Jevoudan. When Duhamel arrived, it was a pretty impressive sight to behold. He brought with him a small army, the likes of which was not often seen in the little rural towns of Jevoudan. About 60 foot soldiers and 20 men on horseback traveled with him. People were impressed and encouraged by his presence. Surely someone with this power and authority could put an end to the beast. Volunteers came out in droves, offering Duhamel their services, each hoping to be the one to fire that critical bullet that would put a stop to the madness. Plus, there was a reward that equaled a year's pay on the line for whoever could slay the beast. So that helped too. Reportedly, at one point, Duhamel's forces reached 30,000 men. And they used every trick in the book to try to slay the beast. They built traps. They used scarecrows filled with human blood and poison in an attempt to attract and destroy the beast. They even had men dress up as peasant women and roam through the woods, hoping to draw it out so that it could be slain. Duhamel and his forces spent entire days wandering the countryside looking for the beast, or making desperate charges towards wherever the most recently reported sighting of the monster happened to be. But the treacherous terrain, the mountains and bogs, and forests and bad weather, made the hunt excessively difficult. And ultimately, Duhamel and his men had very little luck. But their inability to find the beast by no means meant that it had gone away. On a snowy October evening in 1764, a peasant man was working in his barn. His shotgun rested nearby, a habit that he had picked up recently to help ease the nervous fear that the beast had cast all across the region. But luckily, he hadn't had to use the gun yet. As he went about his work, he noticed a shadow dart across one of the narrow windows of the barn, sending a wave of fear crashing over him. He grabbed his shotgun and climbed up to the barn's loft, giving himself a clear view of much of the village. To his terror, just a stone's throw away, he sees a massive animal, casually trotting along the road. The creature looked wolf-like, but was again far bigger than any wolf he had ever seen. Bigger even than a horse. Its hair was reddish-brown, and its mouth was agape, curved upward, 
almost like it was smiling, and lined with large, fierce teeth. Immediately, he knew that this was Labette. Shaking with fear and adrenaline, he raised his shotgun, taking aim at the beast, and he pulled the trigger. The bullet made direct impact with the beast, knocking it to the ground. But then, moments later, it got back up. And when it did, it began furiously scanning the area around it, searching for its unseen attacker. Meanwhile, back in the barn, the peasant again took aim at the monster, and his aim, once again, was true. But the beast was resilient, and this time, it didn't so much as stumble. Instead, it let out a howl, and it took off in the opposite direction, eventually disappearing into the forest. The man alerted the authorities, and a huge search party was put together in an attempt to track down the apparently wounded beast, but no trace of it was found. As time went on, more and more people fell prey to the beast, and its attacks seemed to grow more frequent. By the end of 1764, records show that it had claimed 18 lives, although the actual count is likely much higher. And 1765 was even worse than the year before. In January alone, 11 more lives were claimed by the beast. With the attacks growing more frequent, and the epidemic gaming an increasingly large amount of publicity thanks to the burgeoning printing press, King Louis XV eventually took notice and felt compelled to step in and find a suitable replacement for the unsuccessful Duhamel. In February of 1765, he arranged for Jean-Charles de Nouvon and his son to travel to Gévaudan to destroy the beast. Jean-Charles was the self-proclaimed greatest wolf hunter in the world, claiming to have already personally killed 1,200 wolves, and boasting that the beast of Gévaudan would be no match for him. Well, he wandered around for three months, apparently annoying the entire population of the region with his boastful ignorance, was ultimately unable to find the beast, and after a particularly bloody month of May, all faith in him was lost, and he was dismissed, adding his name to the growing list of impressive hunters who had failed to destroy the beast of Jevudan. Following the dismissal of the Denouvalns, King Louis commissioned a new hunter to join the fray, 71-year-old Francois Antoine, the king's royal gunbearer and lieutenant of the hunt, whom King Louis held in very high regard. Antoine arrived in June, and initially he struggled, just as his predecessors had, with the difficult terrain of the region, as well as poor weather, mostly consisting of rain and heavy fog. The tricky terrain and bad weather, of course, were no obstacle for the beast, which carried on its killing spree as normal. 1765 continued to be a brutally bloody year, and by mid-September, over 50 more people had been killed by the monster, and several more had been wounded. But then, the tale of the beast of Jevudan reached a sudden, unexpected turning point. On September 20th, a pack of wolves was spotted near a nunnery. Among them was an enormous male wolf, one that seemed to fit the description of the beast. Hours later, Francois Antoine arrived on scene, 
accompanied by his team of hunters. After a brief trek through the forest, the men came across several sets of animal trails, which they began to follow. The trails weaved through the forest, dipping between apple trees and around rolling hills, until finally Antoine and company reached a point where the tracks converged with a walking path. As he examined the tracks, he glanced up for a moment to get his bearings, and in doing so, noticed something sauntering through the trees towards his group. At first, the animal was too far away, and he couldn't really make out what it was. He thought, perhaps it was a donkey. Antoine watched it, realizing that the creature, whatever it was, was heading in his direction. And as it did, it started to come into focus. Suddenly, he realized that it was a massive wolf. Antoine yelled a word of warning to the rest of his team while scrambling to raise his shotgun. By this point, the wolf was only a few steps away. A split second before the wolf would have been upon him, Antoine was able to take aim and fire. And then there was silence. He flailed wildly for a moment, attempting to clear the gun smoke that was now distorting his vision and blocking his view of the beast. As the smoke dispersed, it revealed the wolf, lying on the ground with massive head trauma. It appeared that the shot had gone clean through its head, obliterating its right eye and continued on into the right side of its body. The wolf looked to be dead. But then, just as Antoine had finished breathing a sigh of relief, the impossible happened. The beast stood up. Antoine, thinking that the wolf was dead, had already approached it with his gun at his side, and, now being mere steps away, was easily within striking distance. With a snarl, the battered wolf leapt at him with its fangs bared. Blood and saliva flew through the air as Antoine made a panicked and unsuccessful attempt to raise his gun. Realizing it was too late, he instead raised the butt of his gun, preparing to make a last-ditch effort to fend off the beast. But just as the two were about to collide, Antoine heard a gunshot blast, and the beast fell to the ground yet again. His nephew, one of the members of the hunting party, had managed to fell the beast, and this time, the shot was fatal. Antoine and his triumphant men had the beast sent to King Louis, where it was examined to determine just what this monstrous creature was. They were confident that they had slain the dreaded beast of Jevoudan, but not everyone was so impressed, for upon further examination, the beast appeared to be nothing more than a wolf, albeit a pretty hefty wolf. But it was certainly not the horse-sized, red-furred, grinning monster that the stories portrayed. People were disappointed that the beast turned out to be such an unspectacular creature. But at the same time, they were eager for the attacks to end, and they were willing to accept that this was, in fact, the beast of Jevudan. And for a few months, the attacks did stop. Antoine and his men were hailed as heroes, and it seemed that this gruesome chapter in French history had finally come to an end. But this was not to be the case, and in early December, not even three months later, the attacks resumed. It became clear that Antoine had simply slain a wolf, and the true monster was still out there. 
1766, 18 lives were claimed by the beast. And in 1767, another 21. And the victims continued to be viciously mauled and partially consumed. Their throats slashed, organs ripped out, sometimes even beheaded. The vast majority of people who had run-ins with the beast of Jevudan came to a swift but brutal demise. However, there were a lucky few who managed to come face to face with the beast and survive to tell the tale. On January 12, 1765, 12-year-old Jacques Portefeuille was spending the chilly winter afternoon with seven of his friends, dueling with sheathed pikes while they watched their family's cattle. Jacques alternated between blocking blows from his adversaries and sneaking glances towards the grazing cattle, ensuring that none of them wandered too close to the bog that sat at the bottom of the gentle mountainside. Whenever one did venture too close, he would instruct one of the younger children to guide it back towards the group. It was a beautiful day, and the children were all enjoying themselves. Those who weren't dueling were singing or resting their eyes as they lay along the mountainside. It was a rare, carefree moment in what were otherwise very taxing times. But then one of the boys who had been resting along the side of the mountain opened his eyes, only to see a monster trotting up the trail straight towards them. Rendered speechless by fear, all the boy could do was slide through the snow towards a nearby cow, which he attempted to hide behind. But it didn't matter, the creature had already seen the group of children and their cattle loitering along the hillside. Its pace quickened as it honed in on the children. Jacques, noticing his friend behaving strangely, followed his gaze down the path and saw the beast, now almost upon them. He yelled a word of warning and immediately took command of the situation, ordering the group to hide among the cows and for the younger children to take cover behind the older ones. Jacques and the three oldest of his comrades unsheathed their pikes and positioned themselves between the younger children and the beast. They began to viciously lunge at it, putting every ounce of strength they had into thrusting their pikes at the monster. As they did so, the wolf lunged out, ripping chunks of flesh off of two of the children, but it was unable to get a hold of either of them as the onslaught by the older children continued, fueled by their knowledge that the only way that they were going to survive this would be to drive the beast away. And it appeared to be working. The children not only held their ground, but they began advancing on the beast as it slowly backed away towards the bog. But then, in one final desperate bid to take down the children, it lunged past Jacques and company and grabbed eight-year-old Jean, dragging him into the bog. This move, however, only impassioned their assault. The children threw all caution to the wind and began an all-out attack on the beast, surrounding it in the knee-deep bog and viciously striking it with their pikes aiming for the beast's eyes and mouth. It tried to dodge the stinging weapons, but was largely unsuccessful, as the children dealt blow after blow. And then, it gave up. It retreated to the top of a mound, where it took a second to survey the children, but thought better of it and darted into a nearby forest. Jacques pulled young Jean out of the bog, who amazingly was completely unharmed. 
Word of Jacques' heroism spread throughout France like wildfire, quickly making it out of Gévaudan and eventually to King Louis XV, who was so impressed that he actually invited Jacques to come visit him, and ultimately provided him with an all-expenses-paid education and a career in the military, which for the time was a real rags-to-riches story. Jacques and his friends weren't the only ones to come face-to-face -face with the beast and live to tell the tale. Just a few months later, another encounter proved that it wasn't a mere fluke. On the morning of August 11th, 1765, a young woman named Marie-Jeanne Vallée was traveling across the countryside with her sister, Therese. The two of them were servants of the local parish, and as such, they were on their way to the community's tithe barn, where the crops offered as tithe by local peasants were stored. The sisters were in the process of crossing a river, on the other side of which lied the barn, when they spotted movement in the brush along the riverbank. Moments later, the beast emerged. According to Valet, it stood on its hind legs like a man, its eyes glowing and its lips curled upward in an awkward yet terrifying grin. Then it launched itself at the women. Fortunately, Marie-Jeanne had the foresight to bring a long spear with her. She was able to raise the spear just as the beast came crashing down upon her and her sister, causing it to impale itself on the six-inch blade. The women both yelled for help as they struggled with the beast, ripping the spear out of its chest and preparing to defend themselves against the continued onslaught. But to their surprise, when the weapon was removed, the beast cried out, and instead of lunging at them again, it instead threw itself into the river, splashed around for a moment, and then disappeared. The beast's grasp on the region lasted for three dreadful years. All told, there were 240 attacks reported, and of those, 112 of them proved to be fatal. The Beast of Gévaudan made a massive impact on the people of France, and even internationally. The citizens of the region lived in constant fear that if they left their home, they too would meet the same horrible demise that so many of their countrymen had. And all the while, the rest of the world read the news stories and watched the drama in Gévaudan unfold. Even now, the beast can still be found in the scores of books later written chronicling its reign of terror, a reign that finally ended in June of 1976. On the morning of June 19th, Jean Chastel was out hunting for the beast. He and an assortment of other men, including his three sons, had spent the whole night on the prowl, looking for the monster, but they, unsurprisingly, were not having any luck. Eventually, Jean decided to break out from the group and to try his luck on his own, hoping to move more quietly and cover more ground alone. After a while, Jean decided to take a brief break. He propped his gun against a tree and sat down to read his prayer book, but before long his solitude was broken up by the sounds of movement coming from the nearby pine forest. He looked up to see one of the group's hunting dogs locked in a vicious skirmish with the beast. As he watched, the creature landed a particularly devastating blow on the dog, sending it to the ground, and then it turned its gaze towards Jean, 
who by now was watching the beast down the barrel of his gun. He hesitated a moment, calmly taking in every detail, the beast's enormous size, its unusual reddish coloring, and its eyes, glowing red just as the stories described. And then he fired. His aim was true and the bullet connected with the creature's throat. It stumbled and then it slumped to the ground, making a few attempts to get back up, but ultimately it did not. Jean and his men brought the beast back to town where it was cut open. In the stomach of the creature, they found the body of a young girl. Eventually, the carcass of the beast was brought to King Louis, but upon its arrival, it was so badly decomposed that the smell was unbearable, and the king ordered the body to be destroyed. And so it was. But how exactly it was destroyed, or where, was never recorded. At least, not on any of the resources that we have available now. The beast's remains have never been found, leaving us unable, even today, to identify just what exactly this horrible creature was that took so many lives and plagued the region for so many years. But there certainly are no shortage of theories. The most straightforward and grounded explanation is that Jevudan had a serious wolf problem, which we already knew to be true and that with a little bit of creative liberty from the press, or perhaps the help of word of mouth, suddenly the wolf attacks were being attributed to a monster. A completely fictitious monster. And as news of this monster spread, it sparked panic. And so, the beast of Jevudan was born. One theory that I am particularly fond of is that it was some sort of creature not native to the area that somehow made its way to Jevedon. Perhaps it escaped captivity. Many of the features described by those who had seen the beast seemed to match that of a lion. The reddish fur, the pronounced lips curling up into a smile, the big teeth. Remember, this is the 1700s, in a rural community made up mostly of farmers who are barely scraping by. In all likelihood, these people would have absolutely no idea what a lion is. And if they were to see one, then what else would it be if not a horrible beast? And then there are some more, shall we say, creative theories floating around as well. It's been suggested that maybe it was a prehistoric beast that somehow survived years after its expiration. It's been suggested that the creature may have been a big, trained dog, perhaps a mastiff, equipped with leather armor and taught to kill. And there are two other theories worth mentioning as well. Some people believed that the creature was a scourge sent by God, or that perhaps it was a werewolf. And there's some interesting information to support that. As the story goes, prior to going out on the hunt, Jean Chastel visited the local priest to receive a blessing. And then, in order to lure the beast to him, he waited, sitting on the ground with his opened prayer book in front of him. His bullets, the bullets that managed to accomplish what no one else had before him, kill the beast, were silver bullets forged from the molten metal of what was previously a religious amulet. 
As the story goes, Shastel channeled the power of God and used it to destroy the monster that some believed was a scourge sent by God, or possibly an unholy werewolf, an enemy whose only weakness is said to be a silver bullet. Ultimately, it's hard to say how much of this is truth and how much has been conveniently added to the story over time to embellish it and add an extra layer of intrigue. But whatever the case, following Jean Chastel's slaying of the beast, the attacks stopped for good this time, and the beast of Javadon was never seen again. Well guys, that concludes another episode of Simply Strange. Be sure to check out Simply Strange on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I don't like Twitter that much, but I'm trying to tweet more. So, I don't know. Follow me on Twitter if you want. And finally, if you love Simply Strange, please be sure to leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's another great way to help support the show. Thanks a bunch, guys. I hope you all have a beautiful day filled with happiness and dreams and hopefully no wolves. 